Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. This is Babbage, a weekly conversation about technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show, George Halverson, an expert on healthcare and child development, will tell us about how crucial the early years of a baby's life are for its future development. If the child doesn't get that exercise, if no one reads to them and no one talks to them, they literally end up with a weaker brain, and they can't function, they can't learn as well, they drop out of school. Also, printing body parts might sound like science fiction, but it is not. You can build layer upon layers of different cells and tissues, and you can also, of course, print stem cells. And finally, a lot of time and money is thrown into high-end physics, smashing particles together to find out the inner workings of the universe. But could simple tabletop experiments do the trick? What he should see, as he brings the weight closer, is a deviation from Newton's laws of gravitation. But first, what do the early years of a child's life mean for his or her future development? A growing body of research shows that the levels of human interaction and language in the first few years of life has a dramatic impact on the child's ability to learn. Joining us on the line to explain more is George Halverson, George is the former head of several healthcare systems, including famously Kaiser Permanente in California, and he's written many books on the subject of healthcare. George is currently the chairman of the First Five Commission for Children's and Families in California, an organization that works to foster early childhood development in health and education. George, welcome. It's a great pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. So what is the relationship between early development and progress later in life? The first three months of life are extremely important for the emotional development of the child. And the first three years of life are critical for the intellectual development of the child. The brains develop in those first years. And if children don't have their neurons connect in those first three years, by age four, the brain is actually pruning itself. And when the brain starts to prune itself, it's impossible for children who have fallen behind to catch up. Now, do we know what it is about language that helps the brain develop? We know that you have to exercise the brain in those first years. And if you exercise the brain by talking to the child, reading to the child, even singing with the child, the neurons connect. And the connections happen by the billions, and they last for life. But if you don't connect, if the child doesn't get that exercise, if no one reads to them and no one talks to them, they literally end up with a weaker brain, and they can't function. They can't learn as well. They drop out of school. Lives are much more difficult. Now, in the age of AI and bots, I'm sure that there's this temptation for parents to throw on a, uh, a video on their smartphone or maybe even a book on tape and then walk away from the child in the crib. And I'm going to presume that that's not going to be good enough. So what more do we know about the human element of interaction rather than just the speaking and singing and reading? What we know is if the child is interacting directly with another person, the trusted other person, 
the brain lights up, the connections happen, and the brain is stronger. But if the child is just watching a screen, if it's passive, that part of the programming doesn't activate. And the children actually who watch significant television lose ground on their vocabulary. So just like a baby cat is wired to respond to a mother cat, we are wired to respond to adult humans. And the learning part of our brain lights up and gets activated and strengthened when we have those interactions. However, a parent with a screen in hand who's also interacting can make progress. Okay, now many of our listeners are going to immediately reach for that old chestnut, the debate between nature and nurture. And the easy thinking would be that what we're really looking at is not so much the interactions between the parent, but really about the parent's maybe socioeconomic status or their level of education. And some of these shortfalls that we might see at kindergarten may come up with all of these terrible things later in life, like dropping out in prison, because of other factors than just the fact that they can't read or that they have a less dense neural network in their mind. What does the research say? Yeah, the research shows that this is not an economic system. It's a biological system. It's literally about neuron connectivity in the brain. And it's the same for every child from every race, group, economic status. And what we have for an unfortunate reality is that we have not taught that to all parents. And many parents, particularly in the low-income families, are not talking to their children, they're not reading to their children, and so the children miss that opportunity in those first years. And we have done a criminal, criminal thing of not teaching that to every parent. So there are patterns that relate back to economic status, but it is not caused by economic status. So we need to teach it. We need to make it a public health campaign so that every single parent who gives birth knows. What else can public policy do to see that these admirable aims are actually achieved? There's a WIC program in the United States that coaches parents about nutrition from birth on low-income parents. We need to convert the WIC program and have it also teach parents about learning opportunities for their children. And when we did that in a pilot in Los Angeles, we cut the learning gap by 37% in dual-language families in a year. And we need to make books available because over half of the Medicaid homes don't have a single book. So you can imagine when the, the, the parents leave with their, the hospital with their children, they leave with the hospital bag that has free diapers from the diaper company. It can also have free books from the book company. They should absolutely have books when they go home. And they, they should, every single parent needs to be coached. And in fact, what we know is that the, when the obstetricians coach the mothers about this opportunity, we get almost 100% compliance within a year um, in the first year from the mothers who have been coached by the obstetricians. And that's particularly important because the first 90 days are epigenetically important to every child. We did not know that just a couple of years ago. But we now know that in those first 90 days, if a child is hungry and is fed and is stressed and comforted, the brain wires itself in one direction. But if the child is hungry and not fed and stressed and not comforted, the brain literally wires itself differently, and it's a different brain at 100 days. Listen, George, thank you very much for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. George Halverson there. Does anyone in the Babbage community have any experience or expertise in this area? We would like to hear from you, so please send us your thoughts on the issue. Email them to radio at economist.com. Next, 
Each year, tens of thousands of people wait for an organ transplant, but better first aid and the advent of self-driving cars means that there's fewer organs to choose from and a lot of people can't get one. Luckily, science is riding to the rescue with bioprinting, tissue and organs. Yes, it's what it sounds like. We're able to literally print tissues and organs with cellular material. Here to tell us about the strides we're making in the area is our healthcare correspondent, Natasha Loder. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you, Ken. So explain to the listeners, how does bioprinting work? Bioprinting is just like incredibly cool. So about 2000, it was discovered that you could print living cells in a desk jet printer and you could sort of squirt them out and deposit them however you wanted. And since then, the technology has really sort of come along leaps and bounds. And as you might imagine, they can do all sorts of incredibly clever things. So you can print multiple different tissue types. They've discovered that you can support these cells in something called a hydrogel, which is a sort of support structure, which is quite easy to remove later. So you can build layer upon layers of different cells and tissues. And you can also, of course, print stem cells. And essentially, you know, you can create very complicated bits of tissue. So bioprinting has been around for a while. What's new right now? Big companies are starting to take the technology quite seriously, like Johnson & Johnson and L'Oreal, the cosmetics firm, Procter & Gamble. And along with that, there are quite a few biotechs that are making small but significant strides and transplanting tissues for use, testing them in animals and at least saying in principle that they'd like to look for approval to have those tissues used in humans. So there's a company called Organovo for a long time has printed liver tissue and it's tested this in mice and it survives and works. It's human tissue that has been printed. And ultimately, they hope to develop uh, treatment, in fact, for chronic liver failure. And what are the sort of organs other than uh, kidney and liver that we're thinking of printing? Well, one thing that might be really useful to print would be blood vessels, because these often need replacing. There's a company in China called uh, Sichuan Revotech Biotech that has uh, successfully implanted printed sections of veins into monkeys. And ultimately, uh, you know, this sort of technology would allow you to print a vein that could be used to replace something that had bust in a human. Johnson & Johnson as well, they're looking at printing a, a knee meniscus. A meniscus is a sort of little circular pad of cartilage that separates the uh, knee joint. And, and you know, it's, it's crucial to how the knee works. It often wears out, causes lots of problems, osteoarthritis. They want to print new ones. So that's fantastic. I mean, if, if a company like Johnson & Johnson is getting into it, then that means that, you know, five or six years down the line, they, they could have a product. Are we really only five or six years away from actually being able to print organs to put into our bodies? There's a report by an analyst firm called Roots, and they reckon that bioprinted kidneys, which are fairly simple organs, might arrive as early as 2023. What we should expect to see first is sort of bits of organs and organelles. Why would we want a part of an organ rather than the whole thing? Well, we, because we can't do a whole organ. And so sort of as a halfway house to having a whole organ, you might want to uh, transplant a bit of an organ. So if you could transplant a bit of liver tissue or a bit of kidney tissue and that would attach to a kidney or a liver and would work and produce the proteins or whatever that are needed to keep you healthy and would function, then you don't need to replicate the whole organ. You shouldn't get fixated on the sound of it. The, the point is, is to deliver the medical benefit. Natasha, before I let you go, 
I'm a journalist, so therefore people think I'm heartless. When will we be printing hearts? I mean, that's a pipe dream at the moment. It's incredibly complicated organ. And not only do you have to print a huge variety of different cells, you've got very complicated vasculature as well. So it could take a lot of time. That said, that doesn't mean that it's not going to be possible to print heart tissue that's useful. So watch this space is all I would say. Great. Listen, Natasha, thank you very much for coming along. Thank you. In last week's show, we heard about the way automation and artificial intelligence could impact global industries. We discussed how human jobs are likely to be transformed by automation rather than replaced. But Babbage listener Pedro Mello, a physician and healthcare manager from Porto in Portugal, felt that this outlook was perhaps a little too sunny. He said, quote, Automation and AI may be fine for the economy as a whole, but for those who find themselves in the losing side, it's a threat. The new jobs go to others, younger and more tech-savvy, or they may have to accept less appealing and lower-paid jobs. It's their perception, and not an unfounded one. It happened with globalization, and those that felt betrayed by it have just shown their power electing the president of the United States. Shouldn't we take this into consideration? Unquote. Thank you, Pedro, for your contribution. Interestingly, we've actually explored that issue in this week's podcast called The Economist Asks with Thomas Friedman of The New York Times and a noted book author. So please do listen to that. For other listeners, if you'd like to share your thoughts, please send them to us on social media, on Twitter and Facebook, or via email at radio at economist.com. Finally. Searching for the fundamental particles which make up our universe is an expensive endeavor. A lot of money is thrown at projects like the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, which smashes together particles at ultra-high velocities in the hope that answers about our very existence will fly out. But several cheaper stripped-back experiments could offer a viable alternative. And here to tell us about them is Anano Bhattacharya, our science correspondent. Anano, welcome. Hi there, Ken. So first... Please tell us about these new experiments. So what physicists would dearly like to see is some sign of new physics. That is, physics beyond the standard model of particle physics. So far, they've drawn a blank. The last big discovery was the uh, Higgs boson, which completed the standard model. But since then, everything's been quiet. Now, a group of physicists are setting up experiments that are much cheaper than the $5 billion price tag of the Large Hadron Collider. One idea of what could follow uh, on from the standard model is that rather than just the three dimensions, the three spatial dimensions of space and the one of time, in fact, there are many more, up to 11 dimensions. Now, one theory called ADD suggests that these dimensions are actually reachable, tangible in a way. They're, they're under a millimeter in size. Now, Andrew Garachi at the uh, University of Nevada has designed an experiment which could reveal these dimensions. And rather than involving a massive collider, he's using a tiny glass bead about 300 microns wide um, balanced on a laser lattice. What he does is he brings a weight close to this bead and he measures the gravitational interaction between them. Now, if ADD is right, what he should see as he brings the weight closer 
is a deviation from Newton's laws of gravitation. That's really interesting. Has he done it yet? He has built the apparatus and he's starting the experiments to test Newton's laws at those scales, which we're talking about distances of a micron or five microns. And we can trust the finding even at such an incredibly small distance? Our tools to measure it is good enough? Dr. Karachi certainly hopes so. His setup is probing what physicists call the precision border, whereas you have the LHC probing the energy boundaries of physics. He's looking to probe these tiny distances at great accuracy. And what will we learn from that? If, if, if we find that it invalidates some central concepts of Newtonian physics, how would we apply that? That would be a huge breakthrough because it would be the first evidence of physics that contemporary theories can't explain. You know, we've got Newton's laws, we've got Einstein, we've got the standard model. These are the bedrock of modern physics. But there are lots of reasons to think that that is not a complete picture of how we understand the universe. So tell me a little about the other experiments. So another thing that physicists would dearly like to see is some evidence of dark matter, the mysterious stuff that makes up about 80% of the mass of the universe, but we don't know what it's made of. Physicists have some ideas, and the LHC is looking for dark matter particles called WIMPs. So far, they haven't found any. However, there are researchers now trying to probe for dark matter particles on the tabletop, a different kind, a lighter kind, called axions and dark photons. And one way, and this is an experiment designed by Sujit Rajandran at uh, Berkeley and his colleagues, is to try and tune in to the wavelength of some of these particles. And they do that through a setup that they call dark matter radio. Okay, what I'm hearing from all of these experiments is that we can learn these fundamental things about physics without actually building a huge tunnel under several countries at billion-dollar expenses. Well, these are different approaches. They're looking for slightly different things. The Large Hadron Collider is probing at one level. Uh, it's probing higher energies. And these guys are looking to hone their experiments so they can pick up on these tiny, tiny effects that some of these particles are predicted to have. The interesting thing is that physicists really don't know what we're looking for. And so they figure as many different approaches as possible is the, the best way to go for now. That's really interesting. Thanks a lot, Anna. Thank you, Ken. That's all for this episode of Babbage. If you like the program, please share it with your friends on social media. And you can rate our podcast in the App Store or on Acast. In London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.